we always get to a point where we think we figured it all out and then something throws a big wrench and we have to go back to the drawing board. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Mark Bilski. Mark Bilski is a neurosurgeon at Sloan Kettering. He's the head of the Spinal Oncology Program. It's a wonderful institution in New York City, and uh, you've all heard about it. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Mike. Really uh, so pleased to be here. Great, great. Well, we know that New York's gone through a lot with coronavirus, but today we wanted to talk about something a little different, and uh, we wanted to talk about spinal oncology. And it's ironic because I'm sitting in my car here at the hospital because we just finished a T10 to uh, L1 decompression uh, emergent. It's Sunday morning for a spinal a neoplasm, a lady who had breast cancer from 10 years ago. And it, it sort of brings up this issue of spinal oncology and how important it is. Tell us a little bit about your practice and uh, how you came to it. You know, it's interesting. I think at the beginning of my career, I was significantly more interested in oncology than spine-specific uh, tumors. And uh, we you know, were in the largest cancer hospital uh, in the United States and really didn't have a spine uh, cancer program. But they were exactly, as you note, often acute emergencies that came in and needed to be dealt with, not only in a timely fashion, but really in an organized fashion to try to figure out how to make these uh, interventions that we did on these patients, uh, that they would be able to tolerate them and get them through and then get them back to systemic therapy. And so when I started, I really had this very uh, large experience actually in uh, brain tumors and then cranial brace, cranial base malignancies. And uh, Phil Guten was the chair here and asked me to uh, dedicate most of my efforts towards developing a spine program, which is really the genesis of how not, not only did I get interested in it, but it really became, uh, you know, over the last 15 or so years, my uh, my dedicated life's work is trying to figure out how to improve outcomes for these patients. And so that was sort of the evolution of, of this. And I think the reason that we're a little bit different in how we approach these tumors from centers that have traditionally done this is, again, because we had this large experience in oncology where surgery was a really important component of things uh, of treatment for brain tumors and cranial base malignancies. But at the end of the day, it was never going to be a curative. Resections, no matter how big they were, weren't going to cure glioblastoma. They weren't going to cure a sarcoma at the skull base. And so you had to figure out how to uh, integrate adjuvant therapy that would be meaningful. And then it turned out, ultimately, that we got this radiosurgery uh, applied to the spine, which just changed the outcomes in the most dramatic way. And because it changed the way we controlled tumors, it also controlled who and, and how we operate on patients. And so that's sort of been the evolution of, uh, of the practice, at least uh, at Memorial over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. 
So I do want to come back to, to uh, radiation oncology, stereotactic radiosurgery. Uh, uh, we had John Adler on, the inventor of the CyberKnife, one of our early episodes. And I do want to come back to that, but I, I do want to also address this issue. Why is it that it seems like these cases often arrive, at least for us, on Friday night, uh, middle of the night on Saturday? Like It is not a um, random sampling of times at which we as neurosurgeons are being called for oh my God, this person's paralyzed, et cetera, et cetera, right? Do you have an explanation as to why that is? And does that happen at Sloan Kettering? You know, in the oncology center, we've gotten to the point where we screen our patients really uh, carefully. So if somebody has new onset back pain, the medical oncologists know that they're going for an MRI scan. And so, and we don't have a general emergency room. We only have an urgent care center for patients that are already known to us. So what we see at Memorial is a little bit different from what you see at University of Miami, where you do have uh, uh, an emergency room where people come in off the street. And so much of what comes into your hospital and how advanced that patient is, I think has so much to do with screening, how quickly the medical oncologists recognize that there's a new problem uh, and get that patient to imaging and ultimately uh, into your hands. And so you know, it turns out that, you know, I think they hear about it early in the week. They don't get imaged till late in the week. And then you end up, you know, Friday, Saturday with that emergency. But a lot of it has to do with um, how well uh, they screen in the community for those patients. And and I think, you know, we have a huge advantage because we have a very, um, a very isolated uh, uh, program. We have, you know, f- three or 400 oncologists that send us but they all know the rules of new onset back pain as an indication for imaging, et cetera. If you're in a general uh, practice or you're getting a lot of patients from community settings, uh, it, you're going to get them potentially much later uh, in their neurologic progression uh, than potentially what we see on a routine basis. And that's a very interesting point, Dr. Bilski. Um, you know, thinking about that well-oiled machine with very thorough, diligent, systematic screening, and contrasting that to my time in Miami as a medical student at Jackson Memorial, where Dr. Wang is, now in Chicago working at Cook County. I'm thinking about these underprivileged and under-accessed patients who come to the emergency department just complaining of back pain, as you say. They may not have seen a doctor in the last 15, 20 years, and so them walking into an emergency department saying my back hurts is frequently, in, in my personal experience, has frequently been where they are first diagnosed with any kind of cancer, much less this degree of metastasis. Um, at, at, from your level and your vantage point within spinal oncology, what's your approach um, with a patient that far advanced who's, who's had no treatment, no screening at this point? How, how do you counsel those people? And how do you approach them from the clinical side? Right. I, you, you bring up a really excellent point, uh, John Paul. I think those are the, probably the most complicated patients is the one who, who comes into the emergency room with no history of cancer, spine metastasis, and potentially high-grade spinal cord compression. And I, I think no matter what, if there's a neurologic issue and that patient uh, is uh, impaired in some way, the imperative is to get that patient out of trouble. And oftentimes, even if it's a really radiosensitive tumor, ends up being something like a myeloma or even lymphoma, the onus is on the surgeon to get that patient to surgery, get them out of trouble, make the diagnosis, and then get them to proper treatment. If they come in with a fracture uh, and they have significant 
uh, back pain, but no neurologic symptoms, then you have the leeway to work that patient up uh, in a more uh, timely fashion so that you get full spinal axis imaging uh, to, to assess their entire, entire spine. And then you can do a PET scan to f- figure out potentially where this is coming from and, and, uh, and then get you know, uh, uh, biome- biochemical markers like an SPEP, a serum protein electrophoresis, to rule out myeloma, which is not uncommon in somebody who comes in with first presentation of a spine issue uh, uh, and no history of cancer. It's often going to be something hematologic. So you have the leeway to work those patients up, but it puts you in a real bind uh, in other ways too. One is you may, when you take them to surgery, not know how advanced their disease really is or how many medical comorbidities they have. And so the outcomes in those patients are often um, bad. I mean, even in our institution, we either get them as at presentation or we get them transferred from other hospitals with no diagnosis. And you really have no idea of of how sick they really are. And oftentimes if they come in with high grade cord compression and they have a very short history of back pain, their tumor is probably going to be pretty aggressive. And those are the patients that we, you know, often they'll have multi uh, uh, focal discontiguous disease in the spine and then multiple other uh, visceral disease. And, And inevitably, no matter how good these newer agents, checkpoint inhibitors and biologics are that control systemic disease so well, they just inevitably don't do well. And so it, there's not much you can do about it other than I would say if they have cord compression and they have neurology, myelopathy or uh, such that they really need, you know, an urgent decompression to salvage the cord and then you put the pieces together afterwards. So, Mark, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you're in a very specialized center, Sloan Kettering, and I guess you and maybe the group at MD Anderson would be the, the leaders uh, in, in the country, maybe Dana Farber as well. But if you if you think about it, I mean, my understanding is that about one half of all cancer patients will eventually end up with spinal metastases. So, A, do you think we are under treating or not exposed to a, a large proportion of these cancer patients? And B, what's going to be the you know, the opportunity for things like uh, like LIT, uh, the laser interstitial therapies, and things like, you know, the ZAPEX that we heard John Adler talking about? Um, I think LIT specifically, just in, in principle, is a brilliant idea, but has very limited application and probably is going to be sort of a really nice footnote. And maybe it'll find uh, something that it's really relevant for down the line. The problem with LIT uh, specifically, is that it's mostly used for ESCC grade twos, which is spinal cord compression, but CSF seen. And then there are specific uh, mandates for it. It has to be, it's better if it's unilateral, it's better if it's anterior and confined by the PLL. And that's not a very common presentation uh, for patients. So one, it's a, a limited application. Two, it's a very complicated setup because you have to have an MR uh, uh, available, and then you have to have uh, availability of a fluoroscopy uh, OR to put the jam sheeting needles in to introduce the the laser uh, probes, uh, and then thirdly, you know everything evolves, and I think we do live in a little bit of a bubble at Memorial, but I think that the converse is we get to see you know fifteen hundred to two thousand spine tumors a year, and so you start to get a sense of how these um, uh, tumors um, are treated and work very hard to uh, make treatment better. So it turns out that the grade twos 
the ISSC grade twos, we're now doing hypofractionated radiation. So eight to 10 grade times three, as opposed to single fraction radiation. And our outcomes are about 90% controlled durable. And so, and with lit for grade twos, it's about the same. I think in the most recent series, it was about 85%. So at the end of the day, lit probably doesn't add a lot to the armamentarium uh, in treatment. But again, I think what we have the opportunity at Memorial to do is, is advance the treatment so that that patient who comes into the ER, you know, with high grade cord compression and you need to take them to surgery, instead of doing a really aggressive surgery, uh, the basic tenet of separation surgery is do good fixation, do a really good epidural decompression to reconstitute the fecal sac, and then you can get them to radiation, which will give you durable control, uh, uh, you, you know, in perpetuity. And so, the change was, you know, there, even still people are doing on-block resection uh, for tumors or doing really aggressive gross total resections. And the morbidity of that procedure is just extraordinary in a cancer patient. They simply don't tolerate it. And so, you know, we had the opportunity to watch these patients at Memorial that you could do this very limited surgery and get into radiosurgery. And we basically have better tumor control, even than on block resection for those patients who are a candidate for a marginal or wide resection. Uh, and so that that's the advantage of being in a hospital, even though we don't, we do see a fair amount of cord compression, mostly transferred from other institutions, but the advantage is we can, we can sort of figure out, you know, the, the best strategies for that. And then, you know, you can take that to any institution uh, and, and, to, you know, God willing, give optimal care, that allows that patient to get neurologic recovery, stability, and then back to systemic therapy. Well, Dr. Bilski, you know, if I had Harrison Ford on the show, I'd have to talk to him about playing Han Solo, right? And so I have Mark Bilski on this podcast. I would be remiss if we didn't discuss the GNOMES criteria. Um, For people at at my level or below, the GNOMES criteria, neurology, oncology, mechanical, and systemic evaluation of patients with spinal um, oncologic disease. Um, go look it up, read up on it, because Dr. Bilski, I don't want you to give us a lecture. I don't want to just trot you out to talk about the gnomes criteria again. But with a more conversational look and kind of from above, we've had a lot of guests on here talking about leadership, talking about creativity, talking about their process and their practice with the neurosurgery. If you could, from a bird's eye view, talk with us about how you developed this framework and developed this viewpoint and what the creative process was like for you and your team developing what's become such a household name and standard criteria for evaluating patients with spine oncology. I, I think you, you overstated my, my, uh, my uh, contribution a little bit, but I, I think it was just a really pragmatic um, way of looking at patients that could integrate multidisciplinary care. So I, I, started thinking about gnomes over 20 years ago. And it was basically that we just had this ungodly sick population that were exactly, as you said, walking off the street and you had to make a really quick assessment as to what best treatment was. And it, it was just this, this revelation that there are four things we think about, you know, what's their neurology, what's the cancer type and how radiosensitive is it? Uh, are they stable or unstable, right? Because that's a completely different assessment because you can't irradiate that. And uh, and then how sick are they? What's their medical comorbidities? And then what's their systemic burden of disease? And, um, you know, the decisions we made 20 years ago when we had 
uh, surgery uh, and, and conventional radiation are very different from the ones that we use now or, or that we make now. But essentially, it's the same four decision points that we go back to every time. And it was really just completely pragmatic. It was just trying to get thoughts organized to be able to look at this patient and say, this is the optimal therapy. Uh, and um, I think when we started, I, I think it was very helpful for Josh Amata, my radiation oncologist, who's just a genius and one of the pioneers in radio surgery. But what they realized very early on that they had no um, idea of how to assess was mechanical instability or that it even existed in cancer, in spine cancer patients, right? They, they knew about the neurology and they knew about uh, certainly radio sensitivity, but they had no idea what instability was. And then uh, again, whether you could potentially take that patient to surgery. And so it helped everybody get on the same page uh, in terms of their assessment. And then the other advantage that, that really came through is we just kept applying gnomes. And as we added uh, better uh, better uh, surgery and radiation, uh, better technologies that came to bear. And then every bit of evidence-based medicine that came in, you could simply put into that decision framework, which is currently an algorithm. And we have an algorithm that, um, um, that has been sort of in um, use for the past 10 years. But in the last three or four years, a lot of stuff is starting to get integrated that's going to change it. Uh, I think certainly... On the surgical side, separation surgery was a big uh, uh, advance for us. Uh, but the bigger advance is really what Mike uh, Wang and, and, and others, uh, particularly Mike, have worked on for a long time, which is how do you get more minimally invasive? And, you know, recently we've been doing short segment perk screws with cement augmentation through fenestrated screws. And that's been a huge advantage for our patients. And now we're starting to do some of the decompressions. Uh, uh, with tubular retractors, we're working on uh, endoscopic transforaminal tumor decompression, particularly Ori Barzilli and Ilial Alpha, and we're doing now some robotic resection, particularly for paraspinal tumors, uh, with Da Vinci, which is un unbelievably effective for some of these tumors. So we use that GNOMES framework, but the the intent is just to make that quick assessment and then make best judgment on on technology and evidence based medicine at the time that, that, you know, that, that, that decision has to be made. And, and that's kind of how it came about. But we, we, for a long time, we really resisted making it an algorithm because, um, because we wanted, you know, people didn't have access to stereotactic radio surgery, but they still had to make the same four assessments. And so, um, um, you know, there is an algorithm, but mostly it's a decision framework to help you when you go to the ER, sort of say, what do I need to think about and what do I need to tell you know, if you're a resident, what do I need to tell the attending that's going to help them make a decision? So, Mark, if I hear you correctly, it sounds like in the perfect setting, what we would be doing is something more like earlier control uh, that's based upon a good understanding of the patient's disease burden and doing it in a less intrusive, less uh, less damaging way, right? To give the patient the chance of truly getting multimodal therapy with the with the different elements, not just surgery, not just radiation, not just chemotherapy. And and if that's the case, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, that means that this is the real growth opportunity for surgeons in terms of 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 needing to know what to do and being available to take care of these patients, right? Yeah, I, I think unequivocally. I think. Um... You, you know, we, we always get to a point where we think we figured it all out and then something throws a big wrench and we have to go back to the drawing board and start uh, anew. And I think maybe the biggest one in the last, 
two or three years from a surgical standpoint is really understanding instability um, and the role of kyfo or percutaneous cement augmentation. Uh, and we have a brilliant radiologist that is in our uh, program, Eric Liss, who is the best at, at really documenting and watching these patients. And, and we all look at the images together in clinic. So he sees every single patient who comes in, you know, with progressive fractures or, or failed kyphoplasty, et cetera. And um, there was this revelation that if you had posterior element disease, uh, you have burst fracture, post element disease, uh, or thoracolumbar junction, that we had a lot of failures in kyphoplasty, even with good technique, where we're doing a really good fill of the vertebral body. And that's really where percutaneous uh, fenestrated uh, pedicle screws uh, came in. So for those patients with post element disease and a burst fracture, uh, or even thoracolumbar with a pure burst fracture, oftentimes we'll back them up with perk screws. Uh, and Ilya Laufer has developed that program here. He's probably... Uh, seven years ago, I can tell you, we did three cases. Uh, and last year we did about 80. So it's, you, you, you watch this patient population, you look at your failures, and then you develop uh, uh, ways to make that better. And by the grace of goodness, because of you, Mike, and, and, and all the efforts that you all have made, we can now do most of that minimally invasively. In fact, we're now doing for fractures in the cervical spine that need uh, backup posteriorly. We're doing, uh, Ilya's doing uh, uh, perk, you know, cervical screws. Um, and it's not um, perfect yet, but it is worth the effort because anything we can do to minimize the morbidity, uh, uh, time on the table, et cetera, is incredibly meaningful for these patients. Well, Dr. Bilski, I uh, talk about it probably too much on this podcast, but when I was up there for my sub I at Cornell, one week of that was spent uh, with you there at Sloan Kettering, and, and I tried to spend as much time as I could in your rooms with my interest in spine. And just for our listeners to, to get an insight into a pleasant experience I had, it's always nice when you meet people who previously were just a name on a paper or who had written papers that you're interested in. And it turns out that the quality of the man matches the quality of the work you've been reading. Uh, Dr. Bilski, I had a great time there with you. We talked about stand-up comedians that we liked. And one, <laughs> one morning in particular, I had heard while I was coming into the hospital that a very close and very old family friend of my parents, who I knew since I was a child, uh, was actually diagnosed with myeloma involving the spine. And you took a good 15 to 20 minutes to stand outside of your operating room and you talked to me about it. And I've remembered that since I was there. It was a very kind thing that you didn't need to do to take that time out of your day. And I appreciate it at the time. And it's a memory I, I will carry forward with me in my own career. Um, so, Dr. Bilski, thank you so much for that time I had with you and for joining us today on the podcast and sharing your experiences and your thoughts with our listeners. Thank you. And th uh, yeah, you know, it, one of the great privileges, I think, is, is certainly teaching uh, and spending time with with medical students and residents, uh, and I, and conversely, we we get to take care of the most amazing population in the world. You know, if you ever get a chance to really take care of a cancer patient, there is really nothing like uh, the ability to impact their life in a meaningful way. And so, um, you know, I've had a, a really privileged career at, at Memorial, and hopefully, we'll continue to make some great advances going forward. Thanks a million for having me.